This podcast is sponsored by Kava and Arculus. Stay tuned for more information about both of them later in this episode. What's up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where two times every week we talk to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, music, art, sports, politics, basically anyone with a good story to tell. Now, today's guest is a world-renowned Canadian economist who is famous for quite a few things. He was the first to show that inverted yield curves can predict a recession. He was the first to argue that half of the empirical research in finance is false, which I think we can all agree with, and has also done important studies in behavioral finance and corporate finance. But maybe most importantly for us, he recently wrote a book called DeFi and the Future of Finance, which is something that I know that you are all very interested in. I can't wait to dig into that and see what he believes the future of finance is. So Campbell, Harvey, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be on the show. So first, let's just dive right in. How did you first get exposed to the crypto space and what did you find interesting and why did you go down the rabbit hole like so many of us? Yeah, so first thing is that I'm just not writing this fad and put out a book because uh, I got interested last year. I've been in this game for seven years. And seven years ago, I came off a teaching hiatus. So I, I didn't have any teaching responsibility uh, for six years because I was editing the Journal of Finance, which is the top journal in my field. It's a full-time job. And I'm going back into the classroom and I want to do something different. I don't want to use the same slides that I used uh, you know, six years ago. We've all been there in the college classroom where the professor pulls out this old deck from 20 years ago. I didn't want to be that person. So I decided to do something different. And one of the topics I do is foreign exchange. So I figured, well, what about this cryptocurrency thing that I've heard about, but I don't know much about. So the first stop was the Satoshi Nakamoto uh, white paper. So the paper is not published. It's not peer reviewed in the usual sense. It's just on the internet. It's not that long. I read the paper and oh, this, this is a good idea. This is, this is a great idea. Um, and I read it again, and then I, I was convinced I'm going to do this in my course. I will devote a two-hour lecture to cryptocurrency, and the total number of lectures is 12 in my course. So I started, as you say, down the rabbit hole, and this technology is just so elegant. It is the confluence of research in computer science and distributed systems and cryptography and economics, game theory and financial economics. You put that all together and you get something really powerful. I did uh, this two hour lecture and it was a very weird experience for me. Uh, because usually I'm super prepared in asset management. I'm well-published. I've got outside relationships. The, the, the probability of a student putting me on the spot and embarrassing me uh, by saying, no, you got this wrong. Uh, and I know for sure that probably was very high in this lecture because I'm not a computer scientist and I haven't uh, done master's or PhD work in cryptography or distributed systems. So I was really nervous uh, in this lecture. And at the end, um, you know how it is in college where as soon as the lecture is over, everybody just gets up and leaves and right on the hour. So I, I finished and nobody got up. And I, I wow. said, uh oh, 
I made a mistake with the time, <laughs> but no, it was time. And then my second thought was, oh, this must have really bombed, but it was the opposite. Students came up to me and said, you need to transform this into a full course, not a two hour lecture. And that's where I began seven years ago. And I've offered a course called um, Innovation and Crypto Ventures. I've got a second course called Tech-Driven Transformation of Business. Um, I've got uh, four uh, new Courseras that I put out on decentralized uh, finance. So it's a total of about uh, seven courses uh, total uh, in this space. So I'm all in. It's funny, I've had quite a few professors on the show and I've interviewed them and all of them basically say the same thing, which is that uh, my students often are smarter than me on these topics and that I fear that they're going to make me look bad, just as you did. But I think that that's obviously a statement as to what the younger generation is interested in. And perhaps that that's a very, very glaring, obvious statement about what the future of finance is going to look like, right? So you, 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 they're the ones who are going to be in power. Millennials are going to be the ones with all the spending power in the next four or five years as money transfers from their parents as they come into their own. So you obviously wrote a book about this, DeFi and the Future of Finance. What do you think the future of finance then looks like when it's in the hands of millennials? So it, it's kind of interesting what you just said, that they will inherit the money um, because they will also inherit the debt. So we have racked up just an enormous amount of debt. So my generation is handing off uh, a liability that, that is massive. And it's not just the, the headline uh, debt, but all of the unfunded uh, liabilities. So you've got basically three different options here because debt needs to be paid off. And number one is to increase taxes. And we know that that is toxic for growth and nobody wants that to happen. Number two is to print money. And we know what the result of that is. Inflation, that's just a tax. And number three is to increase growth. And my book is about reducing frictions so that we can increase growth. So decentralized finance, think of decentralized finance in the simplest possible model is you're trading. So you want asset two, you've got asset one. So usually go and use a broker for that. In decentralized finance, you trade with an algorithm. So you send uh, asset one to the algorithm and it sends you back asset two or, or vice versa. There was no middle layers, just an algorithm. The algorithm doesn't care if you're a buyer or a seller. And you basically, this is a peer-to-peer -peer mechanism that's very efficient. You get rid of all of these frictions that exist uh, today. Indeed, if you look at our financial system uh, today, I argue it's not that much different than a hundred years ago. Uh, we've got sure. essentially the same banks, the same uh, exchanges, the same brokers, insurance companies. Yes, there've been some mergers. Yes, there's some digitization, but the structure is basically the same and it's very inefficient. So this idea of interacting with algorithms, which we call smart contracts and decentralized finance, it is actually not that far-fetched. Indeed, in the future, it's not that unreasonable to think that we will be interacting with algorithms in many different uh, technologies, not just decentralized finance, 
So this is a technology that fundamentally reduces frictions. And, and let me give you an idea of what I mean by um, reducing frictions and economic growth. So this is an example of an entrepreneur that has got a really good idea. The rate of return that's projected is 24%. Uh, she goes to her bank. So she is fortunate to be banked. She goes to the bank and asks for a loan to finance this project, pitches the idea, and the banker actually likes the idea. Hey, I like this idea, but I would rather deal with one large customer than a hundred uh, customers like you. But given that you're uh, a client of the bank, you've got a credit card. What I'm going to do is to increase the credit limit on your credit cards so you can withdraw from that. And we all know what the interest credit rate is. Right, of course. So effectively it wipes out the rate of return on the project. The project isn't pursued. This is what I call under banking. And the problem with this is that that 24% rate of return project is exactly the kind of project that we need to drive economic growth. We in the US are stuck with 2% real GDP growth. In Europe, it's 1%. In Japan, it's zero. So there's no chance of growing out of this kind of lethargic growth um, without reducing these frictions, making sure that a good project is pursued like this 24% uh, ROI uh, project. And Traditional finance, I believe, has let us down in this respect. There, it, it's interesting, in my book, uh, I show uh, an image of a wire transfer, a Western Union transfer from 1873. So it's almost 150 uh, years old. And, and what's interesting is uh, the following, the transfers for $300 but there's a fee that's associated with this transfer and it's $9, so 3%. And, and we pay 3% routinely when you swipe a credit card. So I, I say that so little has changed. Uh, somebody uh, attacked uh, this on, on the internet saying it just wasn't true, um, that they actually went to a Western Union and tried to do a $300 transfer and the fee was way more 8%. than $9. Yeah, I, I was, that was my, my response to that was gonna be, if anything's changed, those fees have gone up. Yeah, so- right? it, And we've it, seen it, that coming to the forefront, obviously with company countries like El Salvador adopting Bitcoin as legal tender, that's really brought in the spotlight the problem with remittances and how predatory those fees really are. It's eight or 9% usually if you're sending it to a foreign country. Exactly, so th that type of friction uh, is, essentially eliminated in decentralized finance. So, so think of decentralized finance as a technology of financial democracy. And, and let me give you another example. Uh, you mentioned El Salvador, but let's go a little further away to Venezuela. So Venezuela is a hyperinflationary country, 700% inflation. But if you're rich in Venezuela, you're effectively hedged because you've got a bank account in US dollars in Miami. So the inflation is annoying, but 
your wealth is secure because it's in US dollars. Whereas the average Venezuelan is hammered by this hyperinflation. So it's incredibly regressive. But with decentralized finance, your bank is your smartphone. And, and most have smartphones. So you can think of your smartphone as a vault. And in that vault, you've got tokens that are linked to the US dollar. So this is, again, uh, an example of financial democracy, where it's not just the rich that uh, can get this bank account uh, offshore in US dollars, it's everybody. And if you think of the implications here, you've got a, a country who's got uh, a reckless fiscal and monetary policy, whose central bank is disintermediated by cryptocurrency. Yeah, and, and, and we can actually this, make the, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, so if you think about that, um, it's kind of a deep implication that all of a sudden the central banks have some competition and there's a disciplining uh, effect of the uh, cryptocurrency. And, and I think we're gonna see uh, more of that. Indeed, uh, maybe at some point we talk about central bank uh, digital currencies, which I think are purely a, a, a reaction to this competition from the, uh, the current uh, list of cryptocurrencies. Right, I agree. And what you just described is really step one, right? They can uh, obviously hold their money in stable coins, which holds their value in dollars. And I think a lot of obviously crypto enthusiasts would argue that step two is then putting that money in Bitcoin, which then hedges you against those dollars that allows you to, to grow and hedge against that inflation. Yeah, so, right? th so I think that's different. So, uh, so Bitcoin is mainly uh, a speculative store of value. And I wanna make this really clear. Um, that uh, when I started my teaching, it was 100% Bitcoin because that was the only thing available uh, practically. So decentralized finance uses a different blockchain technology. And uh, in Bitcoin, you can send from one person to another person. So it's a transactional uh, technology. In Ethereum, you can do the same thing but it's got this other feature that you can send funds to an algorithm. So when I said, well, you send asset one to the algorithm and then uh, the algorithm sends back asset two, that is a very special feature where you can actually embed uh, a computer program in the Ethereum blockchain and, and run it. Okay, so you cannot do that in Bitcoin. So decentralized finance mainly focuses on the technologies that reside within the Ethereum blockchain or Ethereum-like uh, blockchain. So there's competitors uh, right. to the Ethereum yeah. blockchain. My, the, the listeners here are very, very savvy as to smart yeah. contracts and obviously Solana, Avalanche, Elrond, Algorand, all, uh, and all the uh, competitors. To, to Ethereum, of course. And now, obviously, there's a lot of development happening in DeFi on Bitcoin as well through uh, projects like Stacks and Sovereign that are actually uh, enabling smart contracts on Bitcoin. But I want to circle back to something you said. I think that everyone here, certainly all of my listeners and myself, agree that decentralized finance is a superior system. Certainly in a vacuum, the problem is regulation and the countries and corporations that lose out when you eliminate the toll collector and the third party, which is obviously them. 
right? So we see regulation, heavy-handed regulation likely coming in the United States and perhaps in other countries, but also this is a major threat to some of the biggest companies, the world banks, Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, Venmo, you name it, anything in payment. So do you believe that decentralized finance will be allowed to exist in its optimal state? Or do you believe that a lot of what we love about it will be regulated away or will be threatened, such a threat to those systems that they won't allow it to happen? So not, um, not an easy question to answer, but let me try. So the regulators have a difficult job. They do. And, and they're fully aware of the trade-offs. So right now we're essentially unregulated. The Securities Act of 1933 obviously didn't mention cryptocurrency. <laughs> so we're unregulated right now, but this is the trade-off that if you do nothing, then people will be taken advantage of. And indeed, that is the genesis of the Securities Act of 1933, uh, all of the abuses that took place in the late 1920s. So the SEC is charged with protecting people uh, and, and, and that's a fine objective. But on the other side, if you're too harsh in the regulations, then you basically squash uh, innovation or you drive the innovation offshore. And no country actually wants to do that. So you need to find a balancing uh, point to trade these uh, two things off. And it is a challenge. And it can't be uh, that the objective is to reduce all risk. With any new technology, there will be risk. If you want something risk-free, invest in treasury bills. So we need to take some risk here. And the regulators are also challenged because this technology is not simple to understand. So you need to invest time in understanding the technology. And then even after you make that investment, uh, the technology is changing so quickly. So this year when I taught my decentralized finance course, 85% of the material was new. Okay, so you need to continually invest. And then number three, it's really hard for the regulator to attract talent that knows this space because that talent has got many other options. So, so it is a challenge. What we see is the regulator going after low-hanging fruit. So for example, Coinbase says, well, uh, it is really easy in decentralized finance for us to get let's say a 6% rate of return on a savings deposit uh, in some uh, DeFi protocol. And so they say, well, what about if we offer 4% to our customers? And they don't need to invest in Bitcoin or Ethereum. They can do it uh, fairly risk-free with US dollar coin. So a stable coin linked to the US dollar that Coinbase actually guarantees uh, at a dollar. So you make a deposit and and then um, you get a 4% rate of return, which is vastly superior to uh, what you get in the market. Uh, indeed, you would have to take a lot of risk uh, to actually get a 4% rate of return. And, and this is very low duration. So uh, this is not like for a day. Putting, yeah, you, yeah, it's completely locking liquid. your money for 30 years. Yep, completely yeah, so uh, they get served with a Wells notice um, saying this is, certainly looks like a security. 
Uh, I'm pretty sure that Coinbase knew that already, and they're playing kind of a longer term uh, game. Uh, and, and they had to withdraw this. So I guess if you think about this, um, why did the SEC go after Coinbase when there's plenty of protocols out there that you can get 4% or greater uh, rate of return? So they go after Coinbase because Coinbase is a centralized broker slash exchange. Correct. So they, they are not uh, what we call decentralized exchange. So what I described, sending asset one to a smart contract and asset two coming back, that's the decentralized exchange. Coinbase is a regular broker. It's got a CEO, a board of directors, a headquarters. So essentially the SEC goes after them. Now think about the alternative where the SEC goes after a decentralized uh, protocol. How do they do that? So so how do you serve serve an algorithm? And, And even if you somehow could shut down all of the nodes in the US where that algorithm is running, well, as irrelevant, that doesn't shut it down globally. It's like all what happened with world. Bitcoin miners in China, right? The hash rate dipped when they eliminated 60% of the hash rate and immediately came back over a few months. And that, that's a much bigger system than any of the ones you're describing. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think that it, it's really a, a difficult thing for the SEC to go after uh, a decentralized uh, protocol. You might think, oh, well, maybe what they can do is to go after the users. So these people putting money in, getting a 5% rate of return. But that doesn't make any sense because the SEC is mandated to protect those people. Why would you go after them? So so again, it is a big challenge, but nevertheless, we do need some regulatory clarity. I think that's really important because just the fact that there's uncertainty right now, uh, that uncertainty is causing some innovation to go offshore. So let's set up in the Caymans because there's some risk that the SEC is going to come after us. So we do need some sort of, um, some sort of clarity, some sort of framework. And I also believe that our policymakers, at least the, the economists amongst them, uh, understand the potential here. So there's very few things that economists agree upon. Uh, one of them is that reducing financial frictions, reducing transactions costs is a good thing for economic growth. So they see the potential here. They see that our current system is not serving us well enough. They see that economic growth is being held back and a good dose of competition could actually be very uh, helpful. So you um, can expect that the banks, the exchanges, the insurance companies are going to fight. The, um, the Federal Reserve will fight. It's all of a sudden got competition. I, I'm not sure you've seen this is really interesting. Um, so Circle, who does the USDC, uh, US dollar stable coin, uh, has applied to become uh, a narrow bank. Of course. So very interesting because let's say you've got $20 billion, you've issued 20 billion of uh, USDC, you need to keep that 20 billion safe. So you can buy some treasury bills, let's say, 
But if you deposited that 20 billion in the bank and the bank fails, then you're basically, you break the buck and uh, potentially you could lose a, a large amount. So the stable coin is no longer stable. So uh, Circle's idea is to become a narrow bank. And for those that don't know what a narrow bank is, let me describe a usual bank. A usual bank, somebody deposits, let's say a hundred dollars, um, they take $10, the bank takes $10, and that goes as a reserve to the Federal Reserve. And the other 90, they lend out and make some money off of that. So a narrow bank, they take your $100 and put $100 with the Fed. So there's 10% required reserve and 90% is excess reserve. And the Fed actually pays uh, a small interest rate on the excess uh, reserves. So there's no lending function. This is what the narrow bank actually is. So the reason I'm telling the story is that it's interesting to me personally, because if that ever happened, then effectively we have a central bank digital currency, which is USDC, because Not the Fed is 100% <laughs> a backing it without the Fed even being involved. It just happens. So it is remarkable that something like that is even possible, but the Fed will fight that. So that's competition for them. They will fight this, uh, in my opinion. It's a superior to a central bank because they can just print more. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, um, it, uh, uh, but, of course, with the, the central fr- bank yeah. digital currency, the Fed has control of the money supply. So it's um, so a central bank digital currency, while it might use distributed ledger technology, uh, it's not a, a cryptocurrency. It's a, fiat cur- it's a fiat currency that's digital. In fact, one could argue that it's a wet dream for uh, central bankers because it gives them impeccable and perfect control of every transaction rather than actually having to do some guesswork when there's cash out the system, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's really interesting. So uh, and, and the leader here is China. And and I think that they will be the leader in central bank digital currency because they can do what they want. Yeah, they don't care about but, privacy and freedom. <laughs> so uh, can you imagine in the US uh, that a proposal is put forward whereby the government can see every single transaction citizens make? And potentially, again, the government can 100% tax you so they could wipe out your account if you've done something that they don't like. So maybe that can work in China. They're kind of used to that. Uh, in the US, I think it's um, an extreme long shot that will have even a parallel um, central bank digital currency in the next uh, 10 years. So uh, it's also interesting that uh, you know I said earlier that part of the interest of the central banks in the CBDC is competition. But there's other reasons. So for example, you have instant monetary policy, right? So you want everybody to have a thousand dollar check. It just happens with the line of code. Uh, it, it is extreme uh, precision in control of the money uh, supply. And it's also very efficient in taxing. So you think in Europe, why do they have like a 15 to 17% value added tax? It's so high because many people just use cash. 
right? So you pay for somebody to do a job for you, you just pay in cash and you avoid that. And they have to keep on raising it. The more they raise it, the more people use cash. So this is a way to transact uh, very efficiently in collecting taxes. So for a VAT, for a border adjustment tax, very efficient. You want negative interest rates? No problem. Like today, it is a problem. If the rates are negative enough, I just hold paper currency. Yep. And paper currency is a zero uh, interest rate. So why would I pay negative two in a bank where I could just hold the currency uh, at zero? So uh, they can do whatever they want. But the one thing that they haven't actually taken into account is that, in my opinion, the central banks have already lost control of money as we know really? it. There are other ways to actually uh, transact or to hold. And this is the idea in decentralized finance. We talked about exchange. There's also savings and lending, which we talked about a little bit, but there's also tokenization. And tokenization, we've talked about a little bit in terms of USDC, a stable coin, but it doesn't have to be just a uh, central currency. It could be gold. It could be IBM shares or Apple shares. Uh, there's many different things that you can tokenize. Well, indeed, I think you can tokenize almost everything. So your wallet changes. So your wallet used to be US dollars or credit cards linked to US dollars. Your wallet is transformed into a portfolio of different um, like inputs that you can use in terms of transactions. So I believe these central banks uh, are too late that the horse has left the barn. They will resist, but I think that uh, at some point they need to realize that they've lost this game. Guys, unless you've been living underneath a rock for the past few months, then you've definitely heard me talk about one of my favorite platforms, which is Kava. Kava connects the world's largest cryptocurrencies, ecosystems, and financial applications on DeFi's most trusted, scalable, and secure earning platform. They have borrow APYs as low as 0% and reward APYs as high as 200%. They let you mint stablecoins, lend, borrow, earn, and swap safely and efficiently across the world's biggest crypto assets with a simple and intuitive user experience and the full confidence of institutional grade security and quality. Guys, if you have not checked out Kava yet, then what are you doing? You can check it out at the wolfofallstreets.link slash Kava. Do it now. Guys, I'm so excited to tell you about this new crypto cold storage solution called Arculus. Their cold storage technology keeps your crypto keys off the internet and on an Arculus keycard. With no cables and no USB connections, it insulates you from the thousands of hacking attempts that happen online every single day. You can store, swap, and send your crypto all with a simple tap of your Arculus keycard. And if someone were to get a hold of your card, it doesn't even matter because they have three factor authentication, ensuring that the only person with access to your crypto is you. Guys, you can check out Arculus at the wolfofallstreets.link slash Arculus. That's A-R-C-U-L-U-S. And they're offering $40 off if you use promo code Arculus40. Secure your assets, secure your future with Arculus. And what you just described is why so many people who have been interested in non-fungible tokens and NFTs for a long time believe that that really is the future of value transfer even beyond obviously the art and collectibles scene that we're seeing sort of bubbling at the forefront, an exchange of literally 
any value can be made with a non-fungible token if you tokenize the asset, right? Like you said, yeah. stocks certainly, but that could be your car title. It can be your mortgage. It could be your medical records. Literally anything that needs to be sent from one person to another and proven authentic can be done on the blockchain with an NFT. Yeah, so though I don't think you'd be paying for your groceries uh, at uh, Whole Foods with <laughs> your medical records, but you never know. Um, yeah, it, it is, if you think about the future, uh, and think about that stop at the grocery store where you go to your wallet and say, well, I think I'm going to pay with some gold. And uh, it turns out that Whole Foods doesn't accept gold. But that's not a problem because you go out and this is completely seamless. You go out and effectively transfer or exchange that gold token for something else that Whole Foods wants and, and you're done. You don't even, again, it's really simple user interface. The only thing you need to decide upon is what you're gonna pay with. So there are just so many different uh, options here. So outside of stable coins, which we've obviously discussed, we know that they're pegged to the dollar, very easy for people to understand. I think you start to go further down, I guess what someone would describe as the risk curve, and you have all of these assets, right? And all of people want to use them for payments. They would want to use them for different things, but they're volatile, right? And so, and for people, I think, who are familiar with trading or investing in other assets, they like to make the claim that there's no fundamental value to, to crypto, right? How do you give it value? There's no... P&L and there's no quarterly earnings like a company. So how do we value these individual coins? Uh, if I knew that, we wouldn't be talking. <laughs> I'd, I'd be looking um, to buy a yacht or something. So it, it obviously, this is a very challenging question. How do you value something? Uh, for example, a stock, uh, it's got some expected earnings, the dividend yield, uh, you know something about what they do, and you can come up with some fundamental value. And maybe there's some disagreement. So maybe uh, the consensus is $40, but some people think it's worth 30, some people 50. So there's a range of value. So when you talk about something like Bitcoin, uh, well, there's no obvious cash flow, there's no dividend yield, there's no expiration or maturity. Uh, it's got value uh, because people believe it's got value, that people are thinking that it will appreciate uh, over time and that will be their cash flow. Uh, so it doesn't have fundamental tangible value, but it does have intangible value. So it does allow us to do things. Um, it is a method for uh, transactions that are large. So earlier this year, somebody moved 5.4 billion in Bitcoin in a single transaction. The whole thing took about a half hour. And the fee, of course, everybody can see this. The fee was $19. Yeah, 20 bucks. On 5.4 billion. You know, that, that's pretty good. Uh, Ethereum is different as, uh, as you know, because you can run computer programs in that blockchain. So it actually has some functionality that's different than the current uh, Bitcoin uh, technology. So Amazon Cloud has uh, got value uh, because it provides a computing service. So Ethereum actually provides a service like this and is the backbone of many protocols that actually do things like savings, like lending, yeah. 
Uh, so, so I think that you put this all together, Bitcoin and Ethereum are very volatile. So think of them as four or five times the volatility of investing in the stock market or investing in gold. Gold has about the same volatility as the S&P uh, 500. So this, so there's definite risk here, but the key thing is that there's many different ways to mitigate that risk. So you don't need, if you don't want to take the volatility risk of holding Bitcoin or Ethereum, there are other possibilities in terms of much more stable or collateralized um, coins. So there's a range of possibilities here. Uh, you know, as for like investment in the space, and obviously most of the demand for let's say Bitcoin is being driven by speculative demand rather than the transactional mechanism, the 5.4 billion that I mentioned. So it's a lot of speculation. It is a, a risk on asset and the evidence of that, even though there's not a lot of history uh, for Bitcoin, but go back to March, 2020, the stock market uh, tanks 35%, Bitcoin drops by 55%. Of so, course, I love that example, but I, people forget to mention and not you necessarily that Bitcoin then went up 17 times while uh, the stock market doubled. Yeah, so that so implied again, volatility is risk to the ups, on. That's to the upside. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a risk yep. on asset. So, uh, when the stock market recovered, what happened? Bitcoin goes up in value. So, so again, if there is a crisis uh, where there's a very substantial decrease in value for the stock market, people dump their risky assets. Right, they're yeah, dumping they their cash. equities. They're yeah. dumping their crypto. So, uh, you can't be naive about this thinking that, oh, well, uh, it's just going to keep, keep going up forever. Uh, there will be ups and downs. We've seen these ups and downs. So 2018, uh, there was 85% a drop. So, and, and those that bought at $20,000 in 2017, and then sold at 5,000 in 2018, you know, are obviously the type of investors that, uh, that they need to take my class. Uh, these are yeah. investors that buy high exactly. and sell low when we should do uh, the opposite. So even if you bought high at 20, but didn't sell, you're looking pretty good today. Uh, absolutely. I would argue that uh, those people would have lost money in any asset because of the very nature of the kind of investor they are, as you said, and that's not unique to Bitcoin, but we know a lot of people who did it. Right. Um, it's very hard to buy when everybody's fearful and to sell when everybody's greedy. <laughs> Easy to say, very, very, very hard to do. Right. Agreed. That, that's not the way that uh, humans work, unfortunately. So do you believe that uh, the platforms that we're seeing now, sort of in the infancy, I think we could all agree, of DeFi are the ones that will be here in the future? Or do you think that we're going to see a whole evolution of this space and that, you know, th these will not necessarily be the Facebooks and Googles and Apples, but that uh, those will be replaced by something bigger and better. So there will be innovation well beyond uh, what we see today. And it's kind of obvious. Uh, and indeed, this space invites the innovation in so many different ways. So these protocols uh, in decentralized finance are all open source. So everybody can see the code. So if you've got an idea as to how to improve one of these protocols, well, you just grab the code that's out there and bolt on uh, your idea and you're ready to go. So you could be ready to go in a week 
And if you think about traditional finance, you're, let's say, uh, doing some online banking, and you've got an idea as to how to improve that experience for the user, what's going to happen there? Well, it could take years uh, before the bank does anything. They've got to deal with potentially millions of lines of legacy code, often in COBOL, this ancient language uh, that's really difficult and inefficient uh, to work with. So it's really difficult to innovate in traditional finance, whereas in decentralized finance, uh, oh, well, here's a good idea. Uh, decentralized exchange, Uniswap, all of a sudden, You've got sushi swap, you've got pancake swap, you've got all of these other competitors that are out there, maybe offering a slightly better deal uh, for the user. It's uh, a really interesting environment where the pace of innovation is so fast because of the open source nature of the technology. So will the same players uh, exist in 15 years that uh, are around today? Um, well, some of them will, but there's going to be many new uh, ideas. And this is all good news because this is exactly what we want. We want this constant and rapid improvement to get as close to possible to the goal. And the goal is to have a financial system that's inclusive. So everybody is banked. Everybody has got access to funding their good ideas. Everybody is treated uh, equally, so financial democracy. That's not the system that we've got today. Our system is centralized. And uh, what I mean here is the very large banks have huge market power. That's the reason that the savings rates are so low. They've got this huge power. And with market power, it means that prices are distorted. So the users, the consumers, uh, the borrowers, the savers, they don't get the best deal. So this technology has got the potential of changing things. And it's also interesting to me that there's an intermediate step uh, going on, and that's the current FinTech. So the current FinTech is basically increasing the efficiency so reducing costs for uh, the users and the banks are feeling a lot of pressure and the traditional brokers feeling a lot of pressure from this. And it's all good for consumers because it drives down uh, the transactions costs, but there's a limit. Uh, one of the speakers in my course uh, made the statement that the current FinTech like Stripe and Plaid was like putting lipstick on a peg. Hey. <laughs> and, and, and what he meant was these technologies use the centralized architecture. So they improve upon it. So, it, it, and again, it's a good thing to improve because it uh, actually reduces these frictions. So it's good, but they can only go to a certain level and then they can't go any further using the centralized architecture. So decentralized finance doesn't use the centralized architecture. It rebuilds our financial system from the bottom up. Yeah, they're all going to be blockbuster. <laughs> no matter how much you try to innovate, no matter how many uh, different little things blockbuster gave you to buy at the checkout aisle to get candy and try to offset their losses, that doesn't work uh, forever. And eventually 
you're going to see, I think, DeFi replace it all. It's interesting because before, at the, in the last year or two, before we had sort of a change of the guard in the United States, Brian Brooks, I believe, was at the OCC, and they, they, they put out some pretty compelling material saying, listen, banks are allowed to test stablecoins. As a competitor to SWIFT and ACH, they, they allowed, as we've been seeing now, for banks to custody your crypto assets. So it seemed like there was actually a bit of momentum uh, for these legacy systems to start to at least looking at adopting these superior technologies. I mean, just yesterday, MasterCard made the announcement uh, alongside Bact that they're going to open crypto to every single one of their merchants. So some of them are not clueless. It's just a matter of them taking that next leap of faith and step and adopting completely new technology. But like you said, most of them, it's too late, right? They can't do it. They can't do it. It would, it would cost too much and they'd be too far behind by the time they tried. They're pretty much dead in the water. Yeah, well, again, it's, it's, it's really a challenge because, and I remember 20 years ago, uh, making a decentralized finance pitch uh, a company that uh, I was a partner uh, with. And basically we uh, saw this friction in terms of uh, foreign exchange trading at a bank. So you wanna buy, let's say hundred million euros at uh, the end of November, the bank quotes you a price and then some other customer of the bank might wanna sell and there's a different price that's quoted and the bank right. makes that spread. So what we were pitching was a method to put those customers together. And given that a customer might have relationships with multiple banks, it created a network of peer-to-peer -peer transactions that would be intermediated by the bank. So they would take care of the risk of function and they would get a small fee for this, but nothing like the spread. So can you imagine pitching senior people in the bank so here, uh, can you spend all this money on this new technology that's going to cannibalize <laughs> one of the most profitable things in your business? Right. Yeah, right. very, very tough pitch. But I do believe these banks and uh, exchanges, brokers, insurance companies, I think they get it, or most of them get it. That, um, And let me tell you a story that uh, this is before COVID. So in 2019, I'm invited to talk to the senior people at uh, a major exchange group. I can't say who it is. Uh, and I said, oh, sure, what is the topic? And well, we're gonna talk about crypto, which I thought was kind of a vague uh, agenda, sure. uh, but nevertheless, uh, I fly in, go into this room and it's a very large table. At the table, the board of directors, of this major a company and all senior management. And I take my seat and beside the chairman of the board and we start and the chairman says, we have only one question for you. How long do we have? Really? So they'd kind of figured it out and kind of what you're saying, um, can they extend the runway? So for example, the banks, all banks uh, should have their own stable coin because it just makes sense in terms of being able to transfer money all over the world uh, very quickly, or they should be using somebody else's uh, stable right. coin. Uh, it, it's just kind of like a no brainer that things like that uh, just vastly increase uh, the efficiency. So we will see all of the banks do blockchain type of stuff 
But in the end, it's just so difficult for them uh, to innovate. It's just really a challenge when you get so big. And uh, it's even difficult to attract talent. So yeah. the talent is not going to go to one of these big uh, commercial banks necessarily. They're going to go to a startup that uh, basically going to disrupt uh, this bank. So, so it is, we will see a transition. In my opinion, some of the banks actually will survive. Uh, their business model will be different. Uh, they'll be smaller, but uh, they will uh, transform themselves. And I also think, and this is uh, important, that it's not a binary situation where you're 100% decentralized or 100% centralized. There will be certain things that will be more centralized. And uh, this is especially a point that I emphasize in my course when students are pitching new ideas. And part of the pitch is kind of a choice of blockchain technology. And sometimes they, they're pitching something that's completely decentralized when you don't really need it. Uh, to be completely decentralized. So, so there will be a continuum, but nevertheless, the landscape will just be almost unrecognizable in 15 years uh, compared to uh, today in our financial system. Before we finish, as we're running out of time, what's one more key uh, piece of advice or a gem that you offer to your, your students and your classes? Well, for me as a, as a teacher, um, and then I'm fortunate that I work in finance because finance is about the future. My career has been built around uh, giving people an idea of the future. So you mentioned at the beginning my inverted yield curve uh, work, where I pitched that dissertation at the University of Chicago. People kind of skeptical because there weren't that many recessions in my sample. Uh, out of sample, I had to stand by my model. And usually after you publish something, the good scenario is it gets weaker, the effect. And the bad scenario is it completely goes away. It was just a lucky finding. Well, this yield curve indicator has worked um, for the last four uh, recessions. We haven't had a false signal yet. So this is about the future. And, and I kind of think that part of my job is to give a sense of the future. So you could be forecasting in different ways. So you could be forecasting next day stock price. So it's kind of high frequency. You could be doing a more uh, uh, cyclical forecast, like the yield curve forecasting next year's GDP growth. There's a secular forecast also that talks about different phases of the business cycle. That's maybe three to five years. The most difficult forecast is the so-called structural forecast. And that's what I'm focused on uh, in the next 10 to 15 years. What will the world actually look like? And I try to give my students a vision of what that world uh, will look like. And many of my students actually go to traditional uh, finance firms, which is fine. So I say, you're gonna get some good experience. You're gonna learn mainly about the problems uh, when you get to these firms. And I also tell them the day that you arrive, you start looking for the next job. And the next job is going to be 
at uh, a startup in the fintech or blockchain uh, space. So, so I guess what I challenge my students to do is to think big, to think about the structural issues, think about the problems that exist and technologies that offer the potential solution to those problems. And in the end, I tell my students that after this course, which is pretty a rigorous course, if you think that you understand this technology, then I have failed as an instructor. So my job as an instructor is to guide you and you need to realize what you don't know. And then you need to continue to learn after my course. And only if you do that, will you be a disruptor. And if you don't do that, you'll be the disruptee. I love that. Anyone who's in this space, uh, even part-time, but certainly if you're in it full-time, you can appreciate exactly what you just said because you wake up every day and there's uh, 10 new challenges and things that you completely don't understand that are presented on your plate. And you have to dig in and just attempt to keep up, but it's impossible for any human being, I think, to keep up at that level. I love it. And I love the vision of the future that you've presented here. Smaller banks, uh, central banks having competition from decentralized finance. I think that's something that my audience can certainly wrap their heads around. So where can everybody follow you and keep up with you after this conversation? Yeah, so uh, I mainly uh, do LinkedIn, but also Twitter, at Cam Harvey. Thank you so much. I absolutely loved it. I would love to take your course myself someday, and I'm yeah. sure that some of the my uh, book also book. is available. Uh, you know, uh, DeFi in the future of finance. That's a good it's, starting point. Everybody, go out and buy it right now. I think that uh, I think you should be convinced after this hour of conversation. Thank you once again. I really do appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah.